turn with me to the book of Acts, where today we'll be studying together verses 9 through 25. That is Acts chapter 8, verse 9 through 25. Uh, before I read, let me just uh, give you kind of a heads up. This will be our last time in the book of Acts until after the first of the year. Uh, we will be coming back to it, but starting next week, we'll start a four-week series on Advent, focusing upon the doctrine of the Incarnation, particularly the humanity of Christ, which is really the reason we celebrate the Christmas season. This isn't a, a, a mere birthday. This is the birth of the God-man. And to understand the importance of this, we live in a very atheistic, post-Christian society where we're always having to, de to defend the existence of God, the goodness of God, the deity of Christ. What I'm afraid of is, even though that's a good and wonderful thing to defend, believe me, it's, all, it's, it's awesome, but if we defend it so much that we begin to kind of minimize the humanity of Christ, the weakness of Christ, the suffering of Christ, him being made like us in every way, what we end up losing is not just a portion of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not just a portion of our salvation, but the whole of it. It was necessary that he come in the likeness of our flesh in every way. And so I want us to understand the importance of the humanity of Christ so that we can understand the importance of Christmas this holiday season. But for now, we're going to, uh, for now, we will, we will uh, take our last uh, sermon in the book of Acts until we come back uh, at the, uh, after, uh, after Christmas. So this is Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 25. Hear now the inerrant word of God. <coughs> but there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. They all paid attention to him, for the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. They came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they, came, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, and he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone whom I lay my hands on may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you might attain the gift, of the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, for this, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samarians. 
It says now the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts. Last week, we saw the grand example through the persecution of the Jews in Jerusalem sitting out the, 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 the diaspora, the, the dispersion of the Christian church. They end up bringing the good news of the kingdom of God even unto the Samaritans. And we talked about how, um, how disliked and even hated the Samaritans were in the eyes of their southern brothers there in Jerusalem in the kingdom of Judea. They saw them as being half blooded half breeds not just in their ethnicity as they were the descendants of the northern kingdoms intermarrying with the Assyrian empire but they also saw them as being half blooded in their worship and in their religion they did not worship in the temple of Solomon they did not worship in Jerusalem they had their own temples and they even had their own way of worshiping Yahweh they worshiped him not through the temple sacrifices but it was a blending of pagan rituals. They worshiped the true and living God in a very pagan way. They saw them as being, uh, the Jews saw the Samaritans as being unclean, as marring the true worship of God, and they could not stand the Samaritans. But then the gospel comes into Samaria. They receive the gospel. They believe the gospel because of people like Philip going and boldly proclaiming and preaching the good news of Jesus Christ. And they were all becoming saved. Not just saved. They're becoming joined again with Israel. There's a new Israel that is being made. It's not an ethnic thing. It's not a full-blooded thing. It is a Jesus Christ thing. Are you in Christ Jesus? In him there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male, female, but all are one in Jesus Christ. He is the identity of the new Israel. But I don't want us to misunderstand how big of an event this is. For thousands of years God if you wanted to find the people of God you had to go to a little tract of land in the Middle East on the Mediterranean border but now it's expanding it's now coming to Samaria and this needs to be marked with an event and so when we come to this text there are some questions that we might have here well wait a minute they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and yet they had not received the Holy Spirit how exactly does that work? Does the New Testament not teach that in order for us to believe, we must be made alive together in Jesus Christ, that we must be brought back from the dead, that apart from the Spirit's work, we are dead in our sins and dead in our trespasses? Yes, that is exactly what the New Testament teaches. So how in the world did they believe without receiving the Holy Spirit? The answer is this, they had received the Holy Spirit. They were dead in their sins and trespasses. But when they believed the gospel, they had received the Holy Spirit. They were made anew. But here's the thing. You can easily think in your mind of those Jewish Christians down in Jerusalem hearing that they had received, uh, they had received the gospel and saying, Are you serious? Those, those half-bloods to the north of us, the Samaritans, they received the gospel? I thought this was for us. And so to mark them out as being one with Israel, the true Israel, the apostles, John and Peter, go forth, and you have another Pentecost-type event. Pentecost, whenever you see these Pentecost events in the book of Acts, they're always marking out 
a new stage in the growth of the church. What was Jesus' command? Go forth into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Every time a new boundary is crossed, guess what happens? Pentecost, an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. There is happening in Samaria. We'll see, in, we'll see uh, when we come back in January, it happened again when the gospel goes to the Gentiles. The ends of the earth. This is being marked out as special. These are, these, these are, it's out of the question. These are God's people. No one can question that. No one can challenge that. These are his people. They have been marked out by way of the Holy Spirit. But in all of this goodness, someone sticks out like a sore thumb. And that is Simon the Magician. We see him presenting himself as a Christian. He believes in Jesus Christ. He is baptized. He is in the covenant community. We even see him being, being somewhat convicted, I guess, and then having something that looks like a repentance, but something we see in all of these things with Simon, he's always only half right. It's only a partial belief. It's only a partial repentance. And in Simon, I think we have a warning for ourselves as well. Being halfway right, being halfway in belief, having a halfway repentance is simply not good enough. We need to believe as we should believe. We need to repent as we should be repenting. And so this morning, I want us to see two great failures of Simon. First of all, I want us to see the failure of his belief, that he believed in Christ, but not for the right reasons. And secondly, I want us to see how he turns from the judgment of God, but he never actually turns from his sins. He believed in Christ, but not for the right reasons. And then secondly, he turned from judgment, but not from sin. Let's begin by looking at his half-right belief. Luke begins this story with a a short biography of the life of Simon. He was a magician. He practiced wonders and miracles in the sight of, of the people. But what was this magic that he was practicing? Well, there's really kind of two options here. It could be a magic that you would see similar to today, illusions, some type of, of trickery designed to draw people away from the worship of God and to make himself great in their appearance. That could have very well have been what he was doing. But I don't think we need to discount the possibility that maybe he is actually performing a true magic. And I say that because I th- we live in a very materialistic world. And I think, there, I think we do need to have a healthy degree of skepticism whenever it comes to supposed miracles taking place. A miracle, by definition, needs to be rare. Exceedingly rare. 99 t- 99.9999% of the time, it is not a miracle. It is something, it's something natural, something that just, that, just, that just takes place. But we are not materialists. We believe in a material world, but we also believe in a spiritual world that overlays this world. We believe in the existence of angels and demons. We believe, we confess that our God is invisible, that he is spirit. We believe in these things. And so we can't totally discount that this was a real, if not demonic, magic that he was, cre- that he was, that he was doing. We see this in the Old Testament when when Moses goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And what did the magicians of Pharaoh do? 
they turn their, their, their staffs into snakes. I don't, that's not trickery. That was real. There's a real demonic power, but that's not the important thing here. The important thing is why he was doing his magic. Whether it was real demonic magic or whether it was just a trickery and an illusion. Why was he doing it? And the answer to this is quite clear. He wanted to be great. You see this in verse 9. He calls himself great. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was was someone great. But then we also see it in the Samaritan's reaction to what he says about himself in verse 10, when the Samaritans call him great. They all, uh, Luke writes, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And in that last statement, there is a truth that I see in the world today and even in myself. The desire to be great in the eyes of others and our, and our own eyes can lead us away from the true greatness of God. Listen again to what the people were saying. This man is the power of God that is called great. Which, by the way, early Christian tradition says that Simon the Magician was the first heretic in the history of the Christian church. Now, you've got to take that with a grain of salt, but it sounds about right. When we are great in our own eyes, when we are great in the eyes of others, we will never lead people to Christ. We will never lead ourselves to Christ. What does John the Baptist say of Christ? He must increase. I must decrease. That says I am not going to be great. I am not going to prop myself up. I am going to call God great and I can't do that. I cannot do that if I put myself upon a pedestal. And we see this so happening all over the place now in the world. This desire to be great. We see this with so-called motivational speakers. We see this in the use of, of, social, of social media. I, I saw that uh, a little stat that's saying that there are people who have these large followings on social media, and they earn millions of dollars, not a year, but per month. You see how easy it is now? To, think, to, to, to work your way and to think that you are great, to, to, to become great in the eyes of others. It used to be that you'd have to go to Hollywood. You would have to become a politician. Now you just need a cell phone. But this isn't just a problem for the young people. This is also a problem for the older people as well. See, here's the thing. Just because they're younger doesn't mean they're less in the image of God doesn't mean that they have, they have more of a sin nature. They have the same sin nature as anyone in this room, regardless of how old you are. We are all dead in our sins and all dead in our trespasses. The only difference between now and 50 years ago is that it is easier to do so. This is blatantly obvious when you, when you look at the statistics of pornography use in the world. You would think there would be a big disconnect between young people and older people, but there's really not. The only reason older people weren't using it before is because it was harder to get access to. But now it's right there in your pocket. It's on your computer. It's easy. It's guilt-free. The ease of access, not just the pornography, but with being great, for building up this idol of self. There are more avenues that you can take to build up the idol of self today, the idol of other people's love and their affections for you, and even their jealousy. Everything in the life of a self-idolater, which is everyone in here, 
everything in the life of a self-idolater is something that we use to amplify the greatness of ourselves, even our beliefs in Christ. This is what you see Simon doing. Down in verse 13, we see something that looks like a conversion on the part of Simon. He professes faith in Christ. He is even baptized in the name of Christ. But is it a real conversion? I don't think so. I don't think so at all. Look at the contrast of how Luke describes the conversion of Simon with how he describes the, 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 the conversion of the Samaritans. In verse 12, he writes about the Samaritans. The people believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. No mention of miracles. It was the word that he preached. They followed Philip because Philip was a proclaimer, a herald of King Jesus. But why does Simon follow him? Verse 13, even Simon himself believed and after being baptized, he continued with Philip and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Simon saw himself as being cut from the same cloth as Philip. This was another magician. And he begins to follow him, not because of the one who Philip proclaimed, but because Philip was basically cutting into his business. His followers were going after Philip and Philip's gospel. And he's wondering, he's saying, well, if I can't beat him, then I have to join him. And so we see this come out, come to a head when Peter and John come there into Samaria. They're preaching the good news. They're laying on hands. People are receiving the spirit. And there's Simon saying, I thought what Philip had was great. But now these apostles giving forth the Holy Spirit, having a Pentecost type event, this is really something. So he goes to them and he wants to buy it from them. But listen to the rebuke of Peter and John. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. That would have been immensely discouraging, convicting to Simon the Magician. But I'm not worried about Simon the Magician. I'm worried about you. I'm worried about me. I'm worried about my family. You see, the reason for this conviction and discouragement is because the apostles here are telling us something very important. Of course it matters what you believe. It does. But what also matters just as much is why you believe it. For Simon the magician, the name of Jesus Christ, the ministry of Philip, was just a means to an end. And the end was his own greatness. He had a right confession, but he did not have a right heart before God. Is our heart right before God? Why do we confess? Every morning we come in here and we confess together the Apostles' Creed. Christian Orthodoxy. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. 
who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell on the third day. He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the forgiveness of sins, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. That's what we confess every Sunday. Why do we confess it? Are we confessing it because we believe it, not just to be true, but we, we, we believe it to be life? That's the right answer to the question. I am a weak and desperate sinner, and Christ is an all-sufficient Savior for my desperate need. I come to church because Christ himself has fettered my heart to him by way of those people sitting next to me. I want to be near to Christ, therefore I must be near to his people. Or are we like Simon and following the crowds? Well, I confess because that's what the person next to me is doing. I confess this because that's what my mama confessed. And she'd be very upset if I was confessing something else. I grew up this way. I live in the Bible Belt. There's some, some social credit that I get from doing this. Why are you doing this? Motivation for worship is not a secondary matter. It is a primary matter. And it's because of this. Christianity is not a social religion. It is the religion of the heart. Not a religion of the heart. It is the religion of the heart. But I don't want this to be a discouragement for you. Even if you are here for the wrong motivations, I am okay with that. You know why? Because the only way we grow in our motivations is by coming and sitting under the administration of the means of grace. How do you grow in your motivation? It is by meditating upon the object of your faith. Simon doesn't do that. The word Christ does not come out of his mouth in this story. But we grow in our hearts. Our hearts are renewed as we come and we receive grace. We empty the sin out, sin out of our hearts, lay it at the feet of Christ, and then we are filled with his grace as we take the bread and the wine, as we receive his word, as we pray. This is how we, we are changed, how we are motivated. This is, well, this is what we, remind, we are reminded of when we sing our songs and recite our confessions and say our prayers and sit under the word of God. So I urge you, do not take what we do lightly. Even though we do it every Sunday, do not let it become common in your hearts, but let it be new every day. May his mercies be made new every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. This is how we grow in our motivation. But I want to finish this morning by looking at the other side of the coin. It's not just that the belief of Simon was only half right. It was also his repentance. For you see, even though he turns willingly and promptly from the judgment of God, he never actually turns from his sins. Listen to how Simon responds to the rebuke of the apostles. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. And right there, even though there's nothing wrong with that, there should be something that kind of stands out to us and makes us kind of think, was Simon actually listening to the apostles? 
I mean, first of all, in verse 22, the apostles told him to pray. Now, there's nothing wrong with asking other people to pray. I ask other people to pray for me all the time. But it should make us say, wait a minute, that's not what the apostles said. The apostles said, you pray. You repent of these things. And, and, and Simon comes and says, well, no, you do it. And then look again at what the apostles say in 21 and 22. In verse 21, they say, You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Your heart is not right before God. And then this is repeated in verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray that, if possible, uh, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Here the apostles are making perfectly clear what the problem is. The problem goes deeper than just getting into trouble with God. The problem goes deeper than just seeking to buy the Holy Spirit with money. Those things were just symptoms of the cancer that resided in the heart of Simon. Your heart is not right before God. Pray that the intent of your heart will be forgiven you. You see, it is not just your faith that is a matter of the heart. It is also your repentance. Your repentance is a matter of the heart. You see, Simon sought the mercy of God apart from a broken heart and apart from a hatred of sin. He saw the mercy of God as a means by which his sins could be justified. And this is what we all need to understand. God will never justify your sin. God cannot call what is evil good, and he cannot call what is good evil. Your sins are not justified by the throne of God. The sinner is justified before the throne of God. In order for you to seek out that justification, in order for you to seek out that mercy, you must have a deep-seated understanding of your need of that mercy. You must hate your sin. You must offer your sins up to Jesus saying, Jesus, just, just make this right. Not like that. But to offer your sins to him and say, Jesus, kill these sins. God, you see your son dying here? Crucify my sins with him. I hate my sins. And all of this must issue from a heart that is broken because it was my sin that caused the Son of God to give his life for them, to come and to suffer under the wrath of God. We weren't worried about the, the, the nails and the hands, the lashes on the back. It was the wrath of God that pained Christ. It was the wrath of God that caused him to say, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was my sin. Mercy and sin cannot dwell together. When we receive mercy, it must be because the Son of God has taken away the sin and he has filled that gap with his grace and his goodness and his kindness towards sinners like me and you. This is not a religion of the heart. This is the religion of the heart. Why are you here? Why do you confess? Why do you believe what you believe? And why are you repentant? Is it so that you can be okay with sin? Or is it so that by the grace of God, your sins might die 2,000 years ago upon the cross of Christ? I ask that you would prayerfully meditate on that fact. Eternity hangs in the balance. Our Heavenly Father, you are good, all wise, all powerful. 
And yet, Father, you stoop down to little wretched sinners such as ourselves. And rather than smashing us, Father, you reach forward with your hand of grace and you say, Behold my love, behold my justice mingled together. And we look up and we see the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, and we realize he is my atonement. He is my sacrifice. He is my righteousness. He is my all. May that not just be a confession, but Father, may it be a deep-seated hell belief. May it be our very identity. Imprint Christ upon our minds and our hearts upon our lives. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Now let us stand and join